how many people really know you? Like really know who you are and what you're like. Uh, we had kind of a cool moment. Uh, I had a cool moment. Uh, earlier this year in a feast group, we were at Jordan's apartment and we were talking about something that got me frustrated, right? And so I just, I don't know, I had my ire up a little bit. And I was like, I was fr- fussing about something. And uh, Preston, our dear friend Preston, looked at me and he said, well, Caleb, the problem is what people don't get about you is that you do this. And people don't understand that. And it took me back for a minute. I was like, I do that? And I was like, yeah, you're right. I really do that, don't I? And he's like, yeah, that's the way you are. You just happen to be that way and people perceive you a different way, but it's not who you are and so it frustrates you. And I was like, wow, Preston actually knows me really well. And obviously, if you guys don't know, we've known each other for for years now. I mean, going on a decade. And so we've worked together and it was just really cool to have somebody look at me and know something about me that maybe even I wasn't sure of. And for him to be able to say, most people think A, but I know B. It's really cool. And for most of us, we don't have many people like that. Because for most of us, if we're honest, um, we can be a little confused by our own personality. Sometimes we're not totally sure who we are, right? Uh, Some of this is because we try to... um, project certain identities, right? You have your public persona, the way you want people around you to look at you. Then you have your Facebook persona that's even better than your public persona because all we do is lie to one another on social media, right? About who we are. Exactly. Every family I know loves each other and enjoys going out and nobody ever cries. It's incredible the way families are on social media, right? So you have that persona. You have maybe your work persona where you definitely try to look more competent maybe than you actually are. You have a social persona where you try to pretend you're more fun or outgoing than you actually are. I know for some of you introverts, you work like crazy to pretend like you're more extroverted than you are and then you get home and you crash because you're exhausted, right? And we all kind of live with this Um, exhausting practice of trying to be all these different people. And it kind of makes us wonder who are we in reality? Uh, This is hard for public figures and it's even harder, I think, for Jesus, right? Here we have someone who is not only a public figure, but someone who has been the central role in all sorts of issues for 2000 years And you can see where people would want to paint over top of him whatever persona they want him to have. Theologians have talked about this. One theologian famously said that studying Jesus is like looking into the bottom of a well. And in the end, the only thing you share is your own reflection. So if you're a Marxist, Jesus is a Marxist, right? And if you um, are all about poverty, Jesus is all about poverty. And if you're all about spiritual warfare, then Jesus is all about spiritual warfare, right? That we tend to share the part of Jesus that is what we want him to be. If you could think of all the theologians who tried to define Jesus by their particular interests, or the historians who want to sell books, and so they have to come up with a new and fascinating and bizarre thing to say about Jesus so that someone will pick up their latest publication. Or the followers of Jesus who all had their different concerns and tastes that they were trying to make Jesus agree with. 
or the kings who had their political needs and needed their kingdom to be held up by the words of Jesus in the church. All of these people trying to project onto him the personality and the values that they want Jesus to have. And so the question is, what was Jesus really like? And who could actually tell us what Jesus is like? Uh, this week, as I researched this stuff, I went down a lot of rabbit holes, okay? But one of them I went down is the question of how many friends can a person really have? And it's kind of interesting. There's a, um, a, a researcher. Um, oh, I have his name. Robin Dunbar. And Dunbar started actually by studying monkeys. And he found that the size of a mammal's brain is usually related to their social interaction or lack thereof. And so he had this theory of, oh, well, then we should be able to figure out how much people interact based on how big their brains are. Now, this is kind of a spurious way to start in my thoughts, but they started doing sort of sociological research on the other end and asking people about how many friends they have and what their friends knew about them. And they found they were actually pretty close. They could guess how many friends you had based on how big your brain is. And here's what they found out about people. Uh, they found out that most people have about five close friends. These are the Prestons of the world, the people that know you as well as you know yourself, basically, and that know everything about you. And this usually includes family. So for most of us, our spouse is one of these. Mom and dad might be another couple and maybe one or two other non-related people, right? These are people that truly know who you are. Uh, the next phase out... Whoop. So you have 10 good friends, people that know you pretty well. They don't know you deep, deep down, but they know most of your life story. They know how you're going to react to most things. Then you have 35 friends. These are real people that you happen to hang out with. These are people you regularly see and know you by name and all that stuff. And then you have about 100 acquaintances. Now, what's interesting is now that we have social media, the thought is that this might expand, right? I mean, I have 600 Facebook friends. Clearly, I can have more than this many friends. And the research has found we're really inelastic that way. Even though you have 600 Facebook friends, you're still going to have only about 100 of them that you interact with on any level whatsoever, right? And that no matter how society has changed, this has been kind of inelastic. And there's a lot more stuff on this research that I could go into. It doesn't have to do with the sermon. What's interesting to me about this is that this actually matches what a lot of people have noticed about Jesus and the way that Jesus did his ministry. Jesus had what he called the three. James and John and Peter, right? These three disciples who were super close to him. And they would spend time together, just the three of them, with nobody else around. He then had the 12 at the next level, his 12 apostles or disciples. These people that followed him all the way around, uh, the, the names that we learn in Bible school, like Thaddeus and James the Less and James the Greater and Simon the Zealot and all of these kind of people. Uh, the Bible then also talks about the 72. Uh, the 72 are this group of people who are following him that he sends out on mission. They're apparently listening to Jesus and they know Jesus and he trusts them enough to share his word, but they're not super close to him. They're just his friends. And then there's the crowds, the people that are all around him. And theologians for a long time have talked about this kind of structure to Jesus. We talk about it uh, for ministers, that maybe this is a good way to do your ministry, to make sure you have three people that know you really intimately, and another 12 that you're actively discipling, and another 72 that help do some sort of leadership, and then everybody else you just can't realistically touch. If you're a minister at a church of 1,000 people, it's very hard to touch all of those lives, right? 
And it's fascinating that in some ways it's very similar structure to what Dunbar was finding with our relationships. And so who knows Jesus best? I think the best we could do is to talk to one of those three, right? The ones that when he went on special outings, got to go with him. When he said, hey, I want to hike. I'm, I'm just, I don't want tons of pe- people. You guys, you three guys want to come with me. When he prays in the garden and he says, you guys pray over here, but James, John, Peter, you three pray with me. It'd be fascinating to see what one of them thought. And good for us, the Bible gives us that. We have the book of John. The book of John that we're studying, and this is all a very long intro into the book of John, is to tell us about this person of John and his perspective of Jesus. And the Gospel of John is fascinating because it is an intimate portrayal of what Jesus was like. When you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and we think that John was aware of those books when he wrote his Gospel. When you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're like press releases. Often the stories are very short. This guy showed up and he said this, Jesus said this, they said this, Jesus said this, boom, it's done. It's, you know, a lot of the stories are eight verses, ten verses long. But in the book of John, uh, Jesus speaks a little differently. Jesus kind of rambles. You hear Jesus just go on and on, chapter after chapter about these ideas. And the, the logic is kind of uh, serpentine. It goes back and forth and moves to different places. And you see Jesus kind of more free thinking instead of speaking in sort of uh, sound clips or sound bites. Because John knew what Jesus was like when he was just hanging out with his friends. Not what John was like when he spoke to a big crowd. Not the, the Jesus, uh, what Jesus was like when he was speaking to a crowd. Not the Jesus who was speaking publicly, but the Jesus who was speaking privately. And it's interesting that G- John also gives us all these characters that have one-on-one experiences of Jesus. So often it is a crowd of people around Jesus in the Synoptic Gospels. In John, it's often one person having a heart-to-heart personal conversation with Jesus. And the first one of those is a character named uh, Nathaniel. Now, Nathaniel is not somebody that we talk about a lot. My guess is you probably haven't heard many sermons about Nathaniel, maybe one or two in your life. Um, But Nathaniel's a really interesting guy, and Jesus' experience with him, I think, is really fascinating. Um, So we're going to... Uh, Look at that in John chapter 1, verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. And finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come on and see, said Philip. And when Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Uh, Nathanael has a certain degree of skepticism about Jesus, right? They say, We found the Messiah, and he's from Nazareth. And he's like, <laughs> Nazareth? Really? I mean, I don't even know how to describe it. Um, if you think of the disdain that most New Yorkers have from Jer- for Jersey, right? If you talk to people who live in Manhattan and you go, oh, yeah, I live in Jersey. They're like, really, Jersey? You know, it'd be like, the Messiah is here and he's from the Jersey Shore. And we're like, really? That's where Jesus is going to come from? There's this feeling of like, 
Nazareth is just not a place that you want your messiahs coming from. It's small, it's dingy, it's poor, it's got very little affluence. Um, it's interesting, there's a far bigger city nearby called Sepphoris. And none of you know what Sepphoris is because Jesus isn't from there. But if you were an ancient person, you would have not known what Nazareth is. You'd know what Sepphoris is because that was the big city. And th- Jesus is just from this little tiny place where basically the people too poor to live in the city would live out there and then come in every day to do hard labor. And so Nazareth is just this ugh, place to Nathaniel. You're telling me the Messiah is going to come from there? And then he comes towards Jesus. I mean, you have to imagine the gall of this. Sometimes when it's Bible, like we just think in like flannel graph figures. And so we don't like think about the humanity of the story. He comes to Jesus and Jesus goes, look at this guy. This is a man who always speaks the truth. And Nathaniel goes, you don't know me. Don't pretend like you know who I am. Right. Maybe that's, uh, it's not, I can't promise that's how he said it, okay? But that's how I understand, I see this going down. He says, here's a man whom there's no deceit. And Nathaniel goes, how do you even know who I am? Almost like, how dare you? Like, you don't, you've never spoke to me and you're going to act like you know me? Okay, this, as a preacher, this is something you fear, right? You want to get into a, a conversation with somebody and try to get to who they are and you kind of give them a compliment. They're like, don't try that preacher stuff on me. Don't pretend like you know who I am. And this is the doubt that is in Nathaniel. He just does not buy it yet. And it's kind of interesting because Jesus is right, right, right? This is a man in whom there is no deceit. Nathaniel is not a man who will flatter you or lie to you about liking you if he doesn't. Every word out of Nathaniel's mouth is straight up honesty without any sort of politeness around it. In fact, I think New Englanders should love Nathaniel. This is what I like about living in this part of the country. When I live down south, they're like, oh, darling, we love you. And behind their back, they're like, I hate him. Right? There was a lot of that kind of social stuff. But up here, if someone doesn't like you, they'll be like, hey, I don't like you. Right? There's a lot of honesty in this part of the country. Nathaniel is that man. There is no deceit in him. How do you even know who I am? And then something really bizarre happens that I can't explain. Jesus said, you believe because I told you uh, oh, I missed a verse. Um, all right, let me pull this up on my phone. I somehow missed a slide there. John 1. All right, so we're going to go back to verse 48 where Nathaniel says, uh, how do you even know me? How do you know me, Nathaniel asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. And then Nathaniel declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus said, you believe because I told you. I saw you under the fig tree. You will see even greater things than that. He then added, very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. So he says, how do you know me? And Jesus says, before Philip came and got you, I saw you under the fig tree. And Nathaniel goes, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You're the Messiah. Okay, now let, if you're feeling like that's weird, that's weird, okay? It's not like there's something you're missing. There's not some Bible scholarship that makes this very clear. Uh, this is a great mystery of scripture that Bible scholars always fight about. 
What did Jesus see? Why does Nathaniel respond this way? And there's lots of there's lots of theories. Some people, it's just supernatural eyesight, right? That Nathaniel was a very far away away, and Jesus saw him with his superpowered Jesus eyes from a distance. And so Nathaniel's like, wow, that's super powerful. You must be the Messiah. Uh, there's other options that his, his tree maybe was in his home. And so Jesus had x-ray vision that he could see through the walls of his house to his tree. And that's what impresses Nathaniel. There's other people who will say that the fig tree, sitting under the fig tree, would be a place of prayer and reflection. And that possibly during his prayer time that day, he had felt the presence of God in a deep way. And when Jesus says, I was with you at the fig tree, he goes, that's what I felt. It was Jesus. There's also a theory that uh, the fig tree is always this theme of prosperity. You guys maybe remember when we were studying the minor prophets back in the wintertime, that there's this theme that when God's kingdom comes, that every person will sit under their own fig tree. And what Jesus is saying is, I am here to bring you the prosperity for your people that you've always desired. These are all theories. I have no idea. I can't tell you. Like, if you were hoping I could fix this, I can't. But here's what I think really happened. This is what I think it means. I can't tell you why, but I think I can tell you what the big point is. The big point was Jesus was saying, Nathaniel, I know you. So many of us desire so deeply to be known. And we jump from friendship to friendship or romantic relationship to romantic relationship. Or we burn bridges and rebuild them with our family just because we desperately want somebody to know what we're like. We want somebody to know what we care about. We want to not have to explain ourselves. Right? Uh, if you've been married any amount of time, you have these things where one of you is frustrated and the other one goes, what's going on? And I can't explain it. Well, I can't help you if you can't explain it. Right? And you just get frustrated. Because you want someone to just know you and intuitively understand you. And for whatever reason, there is something about the fig tree where Jesus looks in Nathaniel's eyes and he goes, I know who you are. I know what you care about. I know where you hurt. And I am here for you. And Nathaniel goes, thank God somebody finally understands me. Right? And it's something that John is going to show us over and over in the book. That when people were around Jesus of Nazareth, what was Jesus like? He was the kind of person that could look you in the eyeballs and see your soul and just know you. Have you ever been around somebody that's creepy that way? Right? Like every once in a while, have you ever met a new person that's just creepily like able to understand you? And you're like, hey, how are you doing? And they're like, well, I'm doing all right today. And they're like, is there something going on at home? Are, the kids being, have, are you having an issue with your kids right now? Like, whoa, were you in my car this morning? How do you know these things, right? And Jesus was like that. He could look you in the eyeballs and know what was going on in your heart. Now, the cool thing about this is um, we believe this is still true of Jesus. That Jesus still knows you. And you don't have to be by yourself, right? A lot of us feel very lonely. If we're honest, we feel lonely. There are a lot of people in our culture and our society that just never feel like anyone understands them. And so we talk about those fake facades that you put up to pretend to other people like you're okay. 
And I would say to you today, let Jesus be that person that really knows you. Now, this is something that's hard for me to talk about. Um, you guys know I am not particularly, uh, I think about the right term for this, but you know, I'm just, I'm a very rational guy, right? So I can't totally explain this the way I would like to. But I do know that I've experienced and I have seen and Christians throughout the ages have experienced that in prayer and in worship and in their thought life, that it is possible to just know the love of God, to know that you are seen and you are understood. It is possible to come in prayer and to confess your sins and to confess who you are and what you're struggling with and to have a real palpable sense of Jesus going, yeah, I know who you are. I know what's going on. Uh, that's something that's available, right? It's not just, oh, here's this great guy from 2,000 years ago who had this uncanny ability to make people feel loved and known and understood. That is something that Scripture still promises us. Jesus promising to be with his people until the end of the age. Jesus and John will talk about the Holy Spirit coming as a counselor who will provide some of these same comforting abilities. You do not have to suffer in loneliness because Jesus is alive and he knows you and he knows what you're feeling. And in those moments um, through, again, I can't explain it totally, but in prayer and in worship and in meditation or in your thought life, if you come to Jesus and say, I need, I need somebody to know me, um, God responds and people know and have felt and experienced the presence of Christ in their life. Um, that kind of uh, hopefully gives us a little hope, right? We all want a buddy. We all want a friend <laughs> to go through life. And it's just really cool that the center of the Christian faith is somebody who cares about people on a one-in-one -one level like that, right? There are leaders that are great leaders of people that can't do anything with a person, <laughs> right? They're able to lead big groups of people but not do anything one-on-one. -on -one. And Jesus was not that kind of leader. He was the kind of leader who knew the people with him and could make them break down and even in the skepticism of Nathaniel, go from who are you to you're the Messiah because he saw Nathaniel's heart and knew what was in him. Whatever your fig tree is today, uh, there may be something that is a hope that you have or a hurt that you have. Whatever it is that you're stewing on under your fig tree, I promise you that if you take that to God, Jesus can do beautiful things with it if you just trust him to look at you and know you. All right, uh, if you're new to us, we do a Q&A at the end of every sermon, which is uh, your chance to share uh, with us your uh, questions. We feel like it's really important that sermons are uh, dialogue and not just monologue. And so um, if you have any questions about the passage, the application, anything like that, shoot away and I will try to answer them. Yeah. Yeah, that's an amazing thing that you can, I mean, I live in a house full of five women. And at some point, um, there are still points where I can feel like there is no one around here that understands me. You know, like, um, and so, yeah, I think it's, it's really interesting. Any other questions about sermon today? Yeah. So I really, you know, I'm a big guy. I like, um, all right, I'll get a little nerdy here. Uh, there's kind of a study within um, biblical studies of intertextuality. And the idea that texts communicate with one another and they in, inform one another. 
Sometimes that's really clear. There's some passages in Revelation that are obviously borrowing from the prophets. And so you can't understand the text in Revelation without understanding the text in the Hebrew Bible, which is why most Christians don't understand them because they don't study the Hebrew Bible enough, right? Like this is kind of a, a thing. And so I really like the idea that the fig tree is connected to this kind of symbol of hope and prosperity. Uh, I imagine, this is just imagination, I imagine that Nathaniel would sit under his fig tree and say, God, you promised us that our people would be taken care of. You promised us that every one of us would have a fig tree like this to live under, you know, this famous prophecy, uh, that the war would be gone, that we would be free, that you would send a Messiah. Why isn't he here yet? Where is my fig tree? And then Jesus later that day says, I saw you under the fig tree. And all of those hopes are just like flooding forward. And so for him, there's an obvious connection between the fig tree and messiahship because the messiah and the promise of the fig tree are intimately connected in prophetic passages about the restoration of Israel. That's what I like. But, you know, maybe you just had supervision. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, oh, that's interesting. Um, so Jesus loves people so much and connecting to people so much. I, I don't think he would have been universally against it because I think the ability like um, the ability to have somebody that you loved 10 years ago that you don't see anymore be able to share the birth of a baby and for you to rejoice with them is something I think scripture speaks well of. Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. Uh, when people put up posts about like, my, my dad just passed away, just letting everyone know, you can cry with them. I think those are good things. So I don't think it would have been universally negative. Um, I think he would have definitely harped on honesty. You know, Jesus talks about let your yes be yes and don't be like a hypocrite who puts on a mask and pretends to be somebody else. He would say, don't be a hypocrite on Facebook and, you know, be somebody different than you are. Um, and... Um, yeah, and I think a lot of the fighting he would just see as pointless, I hope, because I see a lot of it as pointless. Um, it is interesting, though, Jesus had this – so the ancient world kind of works like social media and that social media is an honor-shame system, I think. This is, um, this is a total – I mean, I'm, I'm going off totally here, but yeah, I think social media works on an honor-shame system that's very similar to the challenge-repost system that Jesus is interacting in in the Gospels. So often there would be these challenges to Jesus' honor. Well, the Pharisees say this, the Sadducees say this, what do you say? In the hope that Jesus will say something stupid and lose honor. And Jesus always whips their tails and kicks it back at them in such a way that Jesus wins those interactions. And so I do think that Jesus would be the king of someone putting something up. And the first comment would be, well, and Jesus types out his comment. And then everyone else in the thread would be like, Ooh, you've got schooled, right? Like, I just think that that's kind of the way that might go down because Jesus did live in that world where he would have his honor challenged and he was very quippy and able to flip that back around. So I, I would kind of almost like to see, you know, Jesus shut fools up on Twitter. But anyway, I don't know. <laughs> All right. Any other questions? 